Hello, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You're listening to Climate Justice and Inequality, a Below the Radar series looking to highlight the systematic forces that try to undermine climate justice movements while forging towards a greener and more equitable world. This week, we hear from Mark Lee, a senior economist from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and the co-director of the Climate Justice Project. Mark discusses the successes and failures of Canadian climate policies across the political spectrum and conceptualizes how reaching a net zero carbon economy can be achieved. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. This week we have a special guest, uh, Mark Lee from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, BC office. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Mark, maybe we can begin. uh, Why don't you introduce yourself uh, a little bit? Yeah, so, uh, my name's uh, Mark Lee. I'm a senior economist with the BC office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. I've been, I've been there for, geez, almost 23 years now. It was a very small organization when I started, and it, it's grown to become fairly big. And over my time there as an economist, I've looked at a whole bunch of public policy issues from budgets and taxation and public spending on different things like healthcare and education. But most of the last like 13 or 14 years I've spent looking at climate justice. We got a major grant from SHRC, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, back in 2009 to to look at this idea uh, of climate justice. Back then, we kind of liked the term climate justice, but it wasn't really well defined, uh, at least not in a provincial or subnational context. You know, it was much more around just the, the core idea about you know, who's responsible for climate change and, and who pays the price, and mostly framed in terms of, of rich countries and, and poor countries. You know, back then, the framework being the Kyoto Protocol, which treated those different countries in different ways. We sought to advance climate justice agenda in BC. Uh, at the time, Gordon Campbell was premier, and people can remember that far back uh, in, in 2007, Uh, He came back from his Hawaiian vacation and then launched with the 2007 throne speech into a whole of government exercise around climate action in B.C. Uh, So we were able to play part uh, of that and and do some commentary. But even from early on, we recognized that this was a very right wing government whose track record up to that point in time had been cutting public services, cutting regulations by a third, you know, imposing massive austerity in order to pay for tax cuts, not really showing a whole lot of interest or concern about the plight of uh, the poorest British Columbians. So, you know, we were concerned that at that time, a, a rush to climate action may have noble environmental goals, or it may be just of politics uh, as usual and a you know, very a cunning ploy to to steal some votes, but nonetheless, even if it was serious, we were concerned that in that rush, you know, could really have negative impacts for low income households or renters or seniors or you know the fact that um, you know different people have different circumstances, and we needed a policy to be really more tailored and customized uh, to that. So that was basically the origins of the climate justice project, and uh, over the you know, what five years became seven years. And we did uh, a whole bunch of stuff that was kind of visionary and looking forward in in different uh, areas about what a climate justice approach would look like in transportation or buildings and uh, green jobs. Uh, And then we also 
as the BC government shifted away from an interest in climate action towards you know, LNG and pipelines and more of a fossil fuel agenda, uh, then we you know also did some of the work you know critiquing the economics of the claims that were being made uh, for especially for things like LNG with these really bloated claims around employment and the economy and government revenue. So did a little bit of offense and a little bit of defense, but I think in its totality, the climate justice project was a uh, a really visionary work. You know, we partnered with academics, uh, environmental NGOs, labor unions, other researchers of all different stripes uh, in order to, you know, fill this empty container of climate justice and talk about what it meant uh, in BC and, and uh, the kind of visionary forward-looking work about what getting to a zero carbon economy looks like, I think is some of the work that I'm most proud of in my career uh, at CCPA. And I think a lot of those ideas are now seated in, a, in the discussions that you see coming a lot of, out of the academic and environmental sector. So and in some sense, we are, we're ahead of our time. Uh, and now with the latest IPCC report and heat domes and wildfires and droughts and floods and all of the stuff we see routinely in the, in the media, you know, we were able to draw on that base of research towards articulating you know, positive policies and pushing the BC and federal governments to do way more than they currently are. Uh, 23 years at the CCPA, that's your, you're entering Seth Klein territory almost here. In terms of that particular project, what are the outcomes from that research project that you reflect on now that are the most relevant in thinking through the present situation? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think a, a lot of it really comes down to that core idea of like, uh, who is responsible you know, who is causing and climate change, who's benefiting from fossil fuels, and then who's paying the price. Often it's the, the folks who haven't benefited from, you know, driving vast distances or flying on, on planes or, you know, or a, a lot of the consumption uh, that we see particularly at, at the high end. And I feel like some of those things became really acute for all of us during the heat dome event at the end of June, early July, where, you know, all of a sudden, Things that we've taken for granted that, you know, we lived in a fairly cool climate and never got too hot in summer were sort of thrown uh, out the window and people were kind of thrown into survival mode. And as we know, you know, five to six hundred people uh, excess deaths you know, occurred uh, during that particular heat dome. Um, and I was struck by the fact that one of my responses in the worst of it was um, even though we've been working at home for over a year due to COVID, uh, I was able to go into the office and I worked a couple days in the air conditioned comfort. And, you know, once you get back into the office and you have air conditioning, it's a different world. You can focus on all the little problems that you're, you know, working and, and kind of go along as if it wasn't a really big deal. And then when you did go outside, it was like an adventure. You were like, oh, well, let's go see how the heat is now and, um, and, and think about it. But I think it really changes your orientation and that made me realize how access to to cooling or you know the wintertime access to heating are really like fundamental uh, issues of of human rights and you know we need to be you know, rethinking about the systems we have in place and and obviously the heat dome showed that we didn't have very good systems in place for uh, outreach to seniors for example who are living in accommodations that were poorly vented or were particularly vulnerable to the heat in the dome, even though we knew it was coming like many days uh, in advance, we just simply didn't have 
uh, the wherewithal to put those protections in place. So you know, who's responsible? Who pays the price? Uh, it's something that we're seeing you know, all around. It's very random. It's, it's no longer uh, impacts that are happening uh, in the global south or far-flung places or that we think are going to happen you know, many decades uh, into the future. They're kind of here and now concerns and you know, a wildfire could come all, along and, and burn down your town. Like that's, that's the world uh, we live in or a flood could come in and wipe away your house or your farm or landslide, all of these things. So the idea that there, uh, there's inequality in our society and, it, and those inequalities are, are vast and extreme uh, is kind of the second you know, inconvenient truth that we were flagging back in the early days of the climate justice uh, project. And I think if we don't have policies that are like broadly inclusive, then we risk, we risk losing uh, public support. And uh, too much, I think, the debate and um, sort of the economic side of it and the policy side tends to be around a more technological approach, which is that we just replace all of the, the engines and boilers and stuff that's such that are using fossil fuels with ones that are you know, based on clean electricity and renewables. And you know, in a sense, this takes as a given the fact that it'll, it'll, in this future world, it's, it's okay if billionaires are flying around in hydrogen-powered jets instead of fossil fuel-powered jets, uh, or that we still have sweatshops, but they're you know, solar-powered. Um, so I think we want to get serious on climate, but it's also around what kind of world do we want to live in? Uh, what kind of world are we trying to save? What version of humanity uh, is worth saving? And so I think it's it's really fundamental and, and speaks to the idea of systems change, not just uh, you know more incremental changes uh, in the margin. And so you know in the climate justice project, we kind of dug into all of those things in terms of food and thinking about, you know, access to food and hunger and nutrition and, you know, how are some of those uh, interlocking issues uh, all connected within a climate justice framework? Um, when we think about electricity use or energy use in the household, you know, we're also thinking about the idea of energy poverty, the fact that um, a lot of low-income uh, households are disproportionately burdened in terms of the, the price they pay for electricity. In transportation, you know, recognizing that you know, for a few decades now, we've been uh, putting new rental apartments or new multi-unit buildings, even if they're condos, on major arterial streets, exposing the people who live there to noise and, and pollution, uh, while the people who tend to be driving those cars live in the quiet and less polluted uh, leafy neighborhoods uh, of the city. Uh, so, you know, how do we open those uh, kind of uh, things up? Uh, and then also just in terms of like thinking about the transition we need, like what are where are the jobs? How do we reckon with the fact that, you know, through no fault of their own, there are lots of workers who uh, do work in jobs that are contributing to, to the problem. And we can't just throw them under the bus, as it were, uh, as we shift towards um, a zero uh, carbon economy. We need to be mindful about, you know, those impacts and, you know, and try to design policies that are fair and that bring everyone along together. Yeah, you know, the, the uh, climate change oftentimes was talked about in the, the media or at, at a cultural level as this abstract problem in the future. And as uh, many climate activists and others would argue that it was the, the emergency is now. And certainly with the recent events in Lytton and in other parts of the world, we're certainly um, seeing uh, something that it's it's right in right in front of us, and and with the IPCC uh, report, the most recent one of 
a number of them, and there's a, two more coming out uh, by next year, that the gravity of the problem is uh, certainly in, in our face and the work needs to be done in the, in the present. I'm wondering, Mark, when you look at, say, the pandemic situation where you know, an emergency is, is called and state resources are put into motion with restrictions and policies that are quite immediate, it, it does, uh, for the first time in, in our lifetimes, seeing uh, the state being mobilized in a way that it hasn't been for a long time, be it a war or a previous pandemic, let's say. And I'm wondering from a sort of climate emergency point of view, what can you sort of read into the pandemic response that could be both of a site of possibility and, and perhaps problematic about the possibility of the state intervening more forcefully as the situation calls for it. This is certainly, uh, for most people working in climate justice work, their uh, go- governments and the state are representatives of the people and they're the site of doing the most amount of work in terms of uh, regulating uh, industry, uh, carbon emissions, but also other uh, incentive-based uh, models and wondering, yeah, what can you read into or, or lessons that could possibly be uh, read into from the, the pandemic context? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and certainly there's a, a lot of overlap between how we think about climate action and how we think about and how we did respond uh, with COVID. I mean, the main one is, is simply that there is a strong role for the public sector and that, you know, some, these things simply can't be done on an individual basis, you know, in a kind of more marketized framework. You know, we went through several decades where that was just the dominant framework for how we were supposed to organize society. So, you know, not you and I, of course, but uh, in terms of the mainstream and politics and, you know, even, you know, with the kind of more left-wing parties have kind of largely bought into that uh, idea. And it was, it was never, uh, you know, it was never correct, but in the, in the face of like grand crises that necessitate mobilization of resources, uh, it's even uh, less uh, appropriate. So, yeah, I think the idea that, you know, we mobilize through the public sector, that climate change is a collective action problem. So we, we can't get there if it's left up to individuals just making their own, you know, green choices in the marketplace. That's certainly uh, insufficient and doesn't address the fact that, you know, some people live in areas that uh, are relying on a car or that, you know, requires some more fundamental structural change in order for them to uh, live more uh, green lifestyles. You know, it's not just, you know, urban folks who, you know, are more readily able to to walk or bike to the places uh, that they need where they work or they access public services or other uh, amenities. So we need public sector action to solve the collective action problem. And we need it at multiple levels. So we need the municipal government working, we need the provincial government working where a lot of the decision-making authority rests, and we need the federal government working in concert. And that all kind of plays into this you know, global situation at the international level where everyone needs to, to do their part. And rich countries like Canada, or rich provinces like British Columbia, who have benefited so much from using fossil fuels and have very high standards of living and accumulated wealth, owe a disproportionate burden to carry in terms of, of making the really rapid emission reduction cuts you know, as quickly as possible. And the targets that we put on the table uh, to date have been largely a matter of kicking the can uh, down the road. They don't really reflect the urgency of the 
of the times. And even if they've made declarations of climate emergency, it's really hard to see uh, what the emergency is, particularly when you compare it to COVID, where essentially we rewrote the social safety net in a matter of a few weeks. You know, we knew we had to shut down the transmission of the virus, which meant shutting down most social and economic uh, activity. Uh, and as a result, you know, large numbers of people had reduced hours or lost work uh, entirely. So uh, in the face of that, the, the unemployment insurance system, which had been whittled away, you know, over a few decades to a shell of what it was, you know, back in, you know, the 70s and the 80s, needed to be rethought because it was no longer appropriate. The, the, the criteria by which you were able to access that uh, simply didn't apply for people who'd lost their jobs uh, due to COVID. So, you know, the governments, uh, to their credit, you know, stepped in. This was largely the federal government stepping in, you know, with the, the, the CERB, the emergency benefit and the emergency wage subsidy, uh, you know, among other items. And I think BC, among the provinces, stepped in as well, topping up those with its own smaller benefits, uh, with the temporary renters supplement, and, you know, a variety of, of other actions, which, you know, in their totality, helped us get through that early shutdown period as we were waiting for vaccines uh, to come about. Obviously, we're still not out of the woods uh, on, on COVID. And, um, you know, when you look at the numbers today, and how that, you know, pretends for the fall, uh, it, it's certainly challenging. It's a more complex set uh, of problems. But the, the idea at the heart of that, that the public sector has to be part uh, of the solution is, is, is central. And I think you know, I sort of argue that, you know, you know how democratic is that uh, public sector now that, you know, we, we are certainly trusting our governments to do the right thing. And I think by and large on COVID, the BC government has been really good, but other provinces haven't. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a wide range of, of provincial responses, depending on which particular flavor of government happened to be elected within the past uh, few years. So there's certainly uh, more to be done. I also think, you know, the, it, when you shift it back to climate, so much of the framework of the past decade plus has been around carbon pricing. And it's this sort of market logic that, you know, when you, you consume something that emits greenhouse gases, then, you know, you're causing some harms to other people and into the future. And therefore, we just, you know, increase the price uh, of that to reflect those damages, then the markets will work better. And, you know, there's some logic to making it more expensive to uh, you know, increase the cost of uh, emitting carbon. But you have to do that in a way that recognizes, you know, the structural challenges that a lot of low income uh, people face. And it's not necessarily so cut and dry. And you really where we've been going in terms of our policy work has been to focus more on regulation and public investment, uh, simply saying, you know, okay, after next year, you cannot build a building that's connected to the natural gas network. And we will have a, a plan that gets all of the existing buildings off of natural gas, you know, after a certain date, and you can debate whether that debate should be 2025 or 2035 or 2030, uh, you can't buy an internal combustion uh, engine vehicle uh, in, in British Columbia. So simply making rules that you know, make it clear and that drive the marketplace uh, to where we want to go rather than sort of, sort of tinkering on the margins and making it a little bit more expensive and trying to like use incentives uh, along the way in various uh, respects. You know, carbon pricing may ha have some benefits in terms of raising the revenues that we need to be able to spend what we need to do uh, on, on climate action. 
but it's the, the idea that it's just about you know making the market work better it was always flawed to begin with because you know even besides the sort of environmental externality or you know, those additional costs imposed on third party there's all kinds of other challenges uh, with markets in terms of like incomplete information and uh, market power and you know unfair uh, allocation of, of who has the the, the bargaining power in, in particular relationships between labor and management or between consumers and corporations, you know, all of these things are like part and parcel of it. So yeah, if we could, if we've just jettisoned the idea of like the market logic governing society due to COVID and climate, uh, that's a, a big service to public policy going forward. Mark, I'm wondering, uh, you know, from your vantage point, you know, working at a progressive think tank uh, where you're producing research with partners and, putting it out into the public realm and engaging with policymakers. <clears throat> the mode of um, academic research oftentimes isn't working on the timeframes that civil society actors are working at or the funding mechanisms like SHRC take longer to pull together to be able to produce research. And given that we're in emergency, you know, how, what's your sort of reading about what works well and what are the challenges in terms of working with academic uh, researchers from a from a nonprofit civil society perspective? Oh, it's a good question. I think there are a number of challenges for academics uh, in in terms of of how they engage. That's not to say that there aren't a number of of really great uh, academics who are engaged in in the public debate, and you know we see that here at BC and and elsewhere. I, I follow a lot of them on uh, on Twitter. You know, to some extent, like the, the scientists among them are, you know, doing the, the heavy lifting of documenting changes and statistics and you know, things that happen over time that sort of build our foundation uh, of knowledge. In, in my area, which is more around you know, public policy or what should governments do now or in the next uh, few years, that type of academic research tends to be more limited. So certainly there are academics who are able to engage in those conversations, and we've tried to engage those uh, substantially our, ourselves. But, you know, for the most part, you know, coming to the here and now can be really uh, challenging for them. So, and then, you know, there's also just the, the broader issues around, well, who's participating and whose voices are, are getting heard in, in those, those debates. And so, you know, I think we've also been trying to make uh, more of an effort to incorporate things like decolonization and racial injustice into our thinking around climate justice, which you know wasn't really like you know as big a, a deal when we first started out. We were really more focused on just the bigger inequalities: uh, rich households and poor households, and renters and owners, and people who had cars and people who had transit. Um, but all of those inequalities are generally exacerbated. And when you put them through a frame of racial injustice and decolonization, um, certainly decolonization in, in BC has been uh, our, you know, really biggest uh, challenge in terms of, of thinking about climate justice. Um, you know, for example, in the, in the United States, uh, a lot of the in, environmental justice literature is is largely around the, the adverse impacts that um, Black or Latino households have in, in regards to the placement of uh, coal-fired power plants or waste facilities and, and that kind of stuff. It tends to be less of an issue here in BC, but but the issues around First Nations rights and title, the the you know the whole 
justification of the province, British Columbia uh, was a, a land grab that you know took land to exploit those resources, uh, and we've essentially done that and put a lot of the, those resources into the atmosphere uh, in the form of, of carbon uh, dioxide. Uh, and so we are now trying to you know reckon with that uh, legacy and, and how we, we go forward. And then I think finally, you know, the, the media landscape I think is really challenging in terms of, of communications uh, right now. Like the, you know, in addition to CCPA, there are many other NGOs who are also trying to get their message out. Um, there are all kinds of alternative uh, media who are doing a lot of great investigative work and other analysis. And you know, it, there are a lot of uh, competition really for, for eyeballs and, and ears in terms of, uh, of what people are hearing. And, you know, I think that can make it challenging for just the ordinary person who's, you know, going to work and coming home and dealing with the kids and, you know, like how much time do they really have to like get deep into these, uh, these policy debates. So, um, you know, much less an academic article. So, you know, we've really tried to pitch it at a certain level where we're informing and consolidating a bunch of other research that people might not otherwise come across trying to situate it in a, in accessible language that's appropriate to uh, those households that are going to be reading it. And then trying to give some clear directions about where policy should go and, and to, to some extent, you know, what people can do to get more engaged if it, if it lights a fire under them. Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, uh, Mark, in terms of looking at current research questions that you're interested in pursuing or, or where there seems to be maybe a lack of research available um, currently, what are some questions that are sort of uh, keeping you up at night or you think would be um, interesting to pursue in terms of the interface between research and, and policymaking? Well, I think one of the, the big challenges is that, you know, like I said, as, as there are so many organizations that are engaged in this space and, and doing a lot of uh, great work, the, the reality is that, you know, on climate and climate justice, the there's so much complexity to the, the, the science uh, in the first place uh, and to the policy responses uh, that we then make. Uh, and it basically lends itself to politicians kind of bullshitting their way out of it. And so essentially the political spectrum in Canada when it comes to climate is you get on the one hand on the right sort of you know outright intransigence, the Stephen Harper approach, which you know, may acknowledge that climate change exists, but doesn't think it's that big a deal or like it's it's a very low priority amongst all of the other more pressing important priorities that they face. And then on the other side, you have the, you know, the federal liberals uh, where they pay lip service to climate action and they pat themselves on the back with these grand declarations about how great they're doing and the new measures they've introduced and these distant targets that they've set. But when you look on the ground at what's actually happening, it ends up being you know, much more modest. And, you know, that's just on the climate side. But, you know, parallel to that, you see these this mass uh, permission and if not outright public investment uh, in infrastructure that's making the problem worse. LNG facilities, the Transmountain Pipeline uh, being a, a prime example. And not only that, but also essentially subsidizing the very problem. That is, you know, we provide providing all of these credits against uh, future royalties. So we're basically foregoing the for the development of the of say the natural gas resource. We should call it methane because it's not really natural anymore. It's fracked uh, methane gas. But we're foregoing those royalties which are the public's share of the benefits of extracting that resource. And we're essentially handing those over 
to, to corporations. And in doing so, we are actually bringing online production that would otherwise be uneconomic, right? So, uh, so we are actually, you know, bringing more fuel into the marketplace, even though commodity prices are incredibly low and the gas companies aren't necessarily making a huge uh, amount of, of money. But in order to meet some objectives of, you know, northern development and, and, you know, more jobs and resource industries and the kind of idea that eases the resource economy and we have to just keep uh, uh, pushing on that, we're literally, uh, you know, if not directly investing in, then subsidizing the the production of of those of of, a, of an industry that needs to be phased out, quite frankly, over the next you know, decade or two. I'm wondering if you can, from your uh, vantage point of, of of researching policy, both the federal and provincial level, related to climate change. I'm wondering if you can give your perspective both positive and critical of each of the federal and provincial government in terms of the approaches they've taken? Well, if we start with the federal government, I mean, you know, in the shift from the conservative Harper government to the uh, liberal uh, Trudeau government, we have actually seen the development of of climate policy. Uh, A lot of that effort has been around carbon pricing and this kind of pan-Canadian carbon pricing framework where Provinces can do their own thing as long as they meet some minimum benchmark. And if they don't meet that benchmark, then the federal government will impose uh, that carbon pricing uh, on them. Again, it's still rooted in that very kind of market orientation that if we just, you know, increase the price a little bit, then, you know, people will make decisions. And that's not necessarily true, particularly in transportation, where it's it's most uh, affected. You know, people tend to be fairly locked into the the mode of transportation they are because of where they live and, and other factors and where they work and, and and that kind of thing. The other part is that with the carbon pricing framework, we've essentially let industry off the hook for a lot of the emissions. So the, initially, the idea among economists was that uh, all emissions had to pay this carbon price. And what we've done in the name of industrial competitiveness is that we've we've essentially exempted the vast majority of emissions from uh, particular companies or particular industries, so that they're only paying uh, a tiny little bit uh, in in terms of of total uh, carbon tax. And now we're looking at various avenues to allow them to even avert that through uh, various uh, offset mechanisms by you know investing in other sort of nature based solutions and forestry projects, all of which have a pretty dubious track record uh, of actually reducing emissions. Uh, some of them, particularly preventing deforestation or preventing the conversion of, of uh, grasslands into, into crops or are, are good things to do. It's not that we shouldn't be doing those, but the idea that those things are actually sucking carbon from the atmosphere that compensates for a polluter continuing to pollute uh, has been sort of disproved uh, over and over again. So increasingly what we see in Canada is this conversation on net zero, and it's not just Canada, it's the rest of the world as well, but you know, net zero the idea that by you know 2050, you know we still have some remaining carbon emissions, but we balance those out by various carbon removals, whether it's nature or uh, technological carbon sequestration of storage, or the, the big fad now is sort of direct air capture to try to like pull carbon directly from the atmosphere and then bury it underground. Um, but essentially, we're creating all of these uh, uh, escape hatches uh, for industry that essentially allow them to to perpetuate business as usual longer than uh, than we should. 
Uh, and I think that's a really dangerous distraction right now for federal uh, policymakers. Um, you know, too much of it is framed uh, in the in the distant future, like 2050. Not enough is framed about okay, well, how much are you going to reduce emissions next year? How much are you going to reduce emissions the year after that? And what's your plan for going about doing that? And having something along the lines of you know budget updates, uh, like we do with you know fiscal matters, where we have quarterly updates on you know how successful have we been and are we on target and you know if we don't meet that target, you know what what are the consequences? I think that's the type of kind of more rigorous carbon budgeting accounting framework that we've been talking about. Uh, provincially, we have the Clean BC plan. You know, which is sort of an, the first uh, effort at some climate action since uh, BC's earlier uh, under the, the Gordon Campbell Liberal government uh, in 2008, uh, since we tabled a climate action plan uh, back then. It, you know, again, also kicks the can down the road in a number of, of key areas. It says that, you know, buildings have to be zero emission starting in 2032. So, you know, it's, you know, 11 years from now, that's not a particularly ambitious target. It says that, you know, all uh, vehicle sales have to be zero emission vehicles by, by 2040, uh, which is, you know, two full life cycles of, uh, of, of vehicles uh, that are going to pass through. So there's, it's really easy to make these commitments like far in the future. Uh, it's much more challenging to make those commitments in, in the here and now and you know, really back those with, uh, with a budget which hasn't really been, been done. And similarly, we are letting industry uh, off the hook in terms of, of their emissions. You know, the same kind of like loopholes uh, have been brought to bear in, in, in provincial systems. And, I, and I, 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 I'm concerned that you know, we again are going to be pushing towards something that looks more like you know, offsets for large industrial uh, polluters and really just the fundamental challenge that both federally and provincially, over one quarter of our total emissions are simply from the production and extraction of, of oil and gas. You know, like fossil fuel industries are like a huge part, you know, more than one quarter of our total emissions. And that's not even counting uh, the, the fuel content itself, the, the, the pitch, bitumen that's taken out of the ground, the the gas that comes out of, of BC's northeast that eventually ends up in the atmosphere. Those those are, emissions are counted in the jurisdiction where they're combusted, whether that's the United States or China or, or, or Japan. So if we actually look at the full pr- footprint of our uh, of our activities uh, in producing fossil fuels, you know we are much a bigger contributor to global climate change than. You know the rhetoric that oh we're only worth you know a few percent. Uh, it's very very small. We shouldn't we shouldn't worry about that because you know the world's a big place and there are all these uh, bigger polluters. But we are punching way above our weight in terms of contributing to the problem. And you know it just highlights that the need that we need to be at the forefront of contributing to the solution. That we need to marshal these extensive uh, resources in terms of financial capital and human resources and other infrastructure. Uh, to the, the challenge we have uh, right now, the same level of urgency that we had in the in the early days of COVID. Um, it, a long time ago, we could talk about sort of a smooth and, and gradual uh, transition, and that seemed to make a lot of sense. But, you know, the the state of climate science now, this, the, what we're seeing literally on the land base uh, right before us tells us we need to act with, you know, much more uh, urgency. Uh, And that needs to be reflected in the commitments we see from government and the money that's put behind them.
Yes, certainly you see uh, even within governing NDP, Party B, the sort of internal divisions around Site C, LNG, Ferry Creek, and a number of other areas. And I think uh, we'll see you know, some more flashpoints around environment and economy, um, as you mentioned. And wondering if there's anything you'd like to, to add, Mark. Um, well, I think that the essence of our climate justice approach, which I think we need to draw on right now, is to just, you know, is to break it out of just sort of a narrow amount of carbon accounting, you know, whether that's, you know, when we think about forests or thinking about uh, jobs or transportation. And really, the sweet sauce is in finding the, the win-wins. So that, for example, in uh, transportation, it's, it's not just a matter of switching out every internal combustion engine with an electric engine for, for cars. And it's not just about switching every long commute in a car with an equally long commute uh, in a bus. Uh, it's about you know, fundamentally reshaping our communities to have a much, much smaller uh, footprint you know, environmentally and in terms of, of carbon emissions. And that means you know, more things like complete communities, like the idea that people should be able to live closer to where they work and access public services and other amenities and parks and, and shops and all of the, all of the things that, that we need. So that needs to put on the table things like, you know, greater levels of uh, density in the, uh, in the areas where there's are currently dominated by uh, single family or, or detached uh, housing. You know, that's a major source of inequality in terms of the, the urban fabric where we have uh, 30% of the population living on 80% of the landings. Uh, so we need to do that in a way that, you know, builds genuinely affordable housing that can house not just people who need it right now, but the fact that, you know, there are going to be uh, climate refugees and, and migrants coming from other parts of BC, uh, other parts of Canada or North America and other parts uh, of the world. And, you know, as, a, as an area that's quite habitable, that has abundant resources, and that's benefited so much from the use of fossil fuels, you know, we have a moral obligation to uh, to do that. So so we need to like actually increase the amount of housing we're, we're building, but we need to stop building luxury condos as you know, secondary investment properties for, for people who are locals or live outside the area and we need to actually build the housing uh, that people need. But if we can do that, you know, we can address our affordable housing uh, issues uh, and our transportation issues uh, and our jobs issues uh, because you know uh, we need in doing that we need to create uh, a lot of jobs and we we're talking about uh, jobs that you know we think are no longer uh, viable economically or, or environmentally uh, in in the in the northeast of the province uh, you know trying to find things that that you know, bridge all of those elements uh, in a way that improves uh, everyone's quality of life and leads for a better society. So that, that, that I think, is the real uh, key piece uh, that a climate justice framework offers as we move forward. Great. Thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for listening to this third episode of our Climate Justice and Inequality series. You can learn more about Mark's writings and the Climate Justice Project in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next installment in this series with Eugene Kung.